This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Not yet, not yet. You get plenty of chance. Rosh Hashiva asked me to introduce myself. My name is Zechariah Wallerstein. And um, I have special, very warm love and regards from Srili Kyler. who is finally getting homesick. He told me before I left that um, he was in Medrash for three years and he hasn't been back for three years and he's thinking about maybe he should move to Israel. Um, he said he misses the yeshiva and he loves all the guys, but he misses the Rosh Yeshiva more than anyone else. She would please do not get too emotional. <laughs> Last week's Pasha. Very amazing opening Pasik. Ideal, as you all probably know, I mean, some of you listen to my Shira once in a while, that I deal a lot with um, addiction and uh, not, nothing that anyone in this room doesn't even understand what the word means, but. Um, I deal with addiction, drug addiction, all kinds of different addictions. And in America, actually all, all across the world, so the therapists are talking that 28 days, most rehabs are paid by insurance for 28 days, that 90% of addicts that go to a rehab, no matter what their addiction is, 28 days is not enough, and that um, 90% of addicts that come out of a 28-day rehab relapse. So it's an amazing business because the customers keep coming back. <laughs> Works very well. People make a lot of money. But the truth is, if you send someone for 28 days, it's just a money maker. You're not really going to heal them. The minimum minimum is 90, but even at 90, really <laughs> six months to a year. So the question is why? You're taking this guy, he's, he's, he's detoxing, so he's got all the drugs out of his system, you're putting him in an environment where he's got therapy all day and group all day, and you're sending him out into the world. Why 90%, 100 people in the rehab, 90 get out, 100 get out, 90 of them are coming back. Only 10 of them are going to make it, right? The insurance don't want to, doesn't want to pay for more than 28 days. Why do they relapse? So I spoke last week to a whole bunch of therapists. They were Jewish therapists. And I said, what's the question? This is not something new. Why? Was too soon. It was too soon. Even though HaKadosh Baruch Hu took him out of Mitzrayim with ten makos. Right? And, and, and Klai Yisrael saw the Shekhinah, saw what happened to the Mitzrayim. Hashem didn't take him there at Mitzrayim. They have to understand that in those days Mitzrayim had the biggest army, they were the biggest country, they pretty much ruled the world, the Pelishtim were little teeny nobodies. So, we're going to worry coming out of Mitzrayim, with all the all the visa from Mitzrayim, with everything that Mitzrayim had, so they're going to see a little bit war, or Pelishtim, and they're going to run back to the abuser? They're going to run back to Mitzrayim, by the way, most people who go through abuse, it's all in the Torah. Most people who go through abuse always go back to the abuser. The whole basis of drug addiction is you're abusing drugs and then you go back 
to the abuser. Many times I've dealt with abused women, and I'm like, we have to, you have to get divorced, and we have to get out of here, and we got to put your, this guy in jail after what he did to you. And she's like, no, you don't understand, Rabbi Wallerstein. Uh, even though he beat me up, and I'm all black and blue, but you know, it's my fault because I put the spoon wasn't exactly straight; it was a little bit to the left. And I'm looking at this woman. And I'm like, what are you saying? Like, are you kidding me? Because you put the spoon, this makes sense to you? And the answer is that the abuser, the mentality of the person that's abused, it's not only the physical abuse, it's the emotional abuse, that in their head they become abused. And they're used to being abused, and therefore they would rather be abused what they're used to than go out on their own in life and, and go into a new world. So they're not willing to press charges, and they're not willing to leave the house, and it's a waste of time. And this is what happened here. Kleisro was abused for 210 years. We were avadim. They whipped us. They beat us. In the end, they didn't even give us the bricks. They took our children and they threw them into the, into the Nile River. They totally abused Kleisro. So they were physically abused because Baruch took us out of the physical abuse. But the mental abuse, which is much worse than the physical, the beating, the black and blue marks go away. But the emotional abuse does not go away. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu knew this. Who was the best therapist in the world? Who created the human being? GM, if you want to understand your car, you look at the manual that's in your glove compartment. They're the ones who made your car. You don't make decisions on your own. So HaKadosh Baruch Hu understood that. He understood that he had a nation that he physically took out of abuse, but the mental abuse was still in their heads. So the Pasuk says, Ki I didn't take him through Eretz Klishtim because that would have been the fastest way. Imagine if you have ways, and every time it takes you the longest way. You're going to throw it out the window. You're going to throw it out, unless it's taking you to Yeshiva, so it takes a little bit long, you may not throw it out of the window. But normally, you're going to throw it out of the window, right? So what's, what's the plastic saying here? Keep karavu? Because it would have been faster? That's why you didn't go this way? Derech Eretz Klishtim? Because Hashem said, Not only, not that they're going to be in war, don't they say that they're going to be in war? They're going to see war. They're going to see the pollution come out. Panic. They don't even get to fight them. Hashem said, I'll fight them. I took the triumph down. I'll take the pollution down. No, no, no. We can't even see an enemy in, in, dressed in armor. Why? Beshovel Mitzrayimah. We're going to go back to Mitzrayim. This first person is the first two years when you go to school and you want to become a therapist, one of the biggest things that they talk about is called triggers. There's something called triggers. When someone goes through something and then he gets triggered, the whole thing comes back. They're awesome, Muhammad. They're awesome. Not they're going to be in war, not they're going to be fighting, but just looking at an enemy in war is going to trigger them to turn around and go back to the abuse. One of the most famous stories that I heard when I was studying, I'm not a psychologist, but I read a lot about it. And it's all in the title. There's nothing to talk about. And one of the most interesting stories that I ever read was there was a woman who was the CEO of a huge company. I'm talking like a four, like a really big company. And they had this huge meeting with this, this big table, like 30 people sitting at this conference table. And she sits down, and everybody's ready to start the, the meeting. And it, all of a sudden, the last guy walks in, and he walks through the door, the glass doors, right? She's sitting over here. He walks through the doors, and he's wearing a bright red tie. And he walks in, and this woman who's the CEO, who's sitting there, goes like this, in front of the whole place. Like this. 
she crawls up into a fetal position. As a CEO of, of, of a huge company, everyone's looking at her, what's going on over here? And, and then she straightens herself out, and she composes herself, the guy sits down, and they have the meeting. At the end of the meeting, she goes back into her office, her executive secretary walks up to her and says, are you okay? Like, what happened? What was that? She said, really, it's not for really, you're my secretary, my assistant, my father used to abuse me as a child. He sexually abused me, and every time he came into the room, he was wearing a bright red tie. So when that guy walked in with the red tie, I didn't see a tie, I saw my father. So I automatically reacted this way. That's the most famous story about triggering. Clyde Israel was so mentally still slaves that just seeing a war, seeing an enemy, would send them back to the worst place in the world. They'd have to give back all the gold they took, all the money they took. They'd have to go, right, that's even harder than being an Eved, right? They'd have to, they'd have to go back to Abdus, and the, and the Egyptians would know that they have them now because they escaped and came back. They're not leaving again. Because Baruch Hu knew this. So therefore, He took them. Why am I telling you this? So, many times I deal with guys and one of their questions to me is, you're too strict, Rabbi. You're too tough. Like, you talk against alcohol and you talk against marijuana and you talk against girls and pornography. You just get up there and you, you like, what are we supposed to do? Like, like, is there anything wrong? This is the big question. Is there anything wrong with smoking one joint? Is there anything wrong with getting drunk on one Shabbos? Is there anything wrong with talking to one girl just a little bit? Like, is there anything wrong with one time watching a movie that I shouldn't watch? Like, what's, it's not the end of the world. I'll, I'll, I'll ask Kapar on Yom Kippur. It's, it's, it's one time. Like, Rabbi, I learned all day. It's not going to change me. And, and this is something, the reason that I'm speaking about this, this is something that bothers me a lot. Because everyone tells me the same thing. It doesn't change me. I'm still in yeshiva. I'm still learning. I'm still a good guy. I'm a good guy. I give tzedakah. No, I'm a good guy. I help Rosh I, I do what I'm supposed to do. So once in a while, I watch a movie that I'm not supposed to. So once in a while, I get blitzed on one Shabbos. Once in a while, I smoke a joint once a year. What's so bad about it? So I want to tell you what's so bad about it. The one time. Because <coughs> when we're created, he brings us into this world. We have an open mind. We're little kids. We have an open mind. We have a clean slate, like a chalkboard that's clean. We have an open mind. Every act that you do in your life, in your psyche, creates a road. A road. Everything you do. You are, what are you? What is a person? A person is the makeup of the ingredients of his life, his past, and his present. That's who you are. So we create all these different roads in our mind. Now, if a person gets drunk once, he knows what it feels like 
to get buzzed. He knows what it feels like to get drunk. So this road in your psyche, your mind, that's created, we'll call it drunk road, whatever you want to call it, drink road, whatever you want to call it, right? Now that road, that road is a road you now know what it feels like. You can never, ever get rid of it. Once you know what something feels like, you can do tshuva on the Avera, you can do tshuva, but your mind and your body knows what it feels like. If you ever broke your arm, it heals. But you know what a broken arm feels like. So in your psyche, you now have a road. You know what it feels like to get drunk. You smoke pot, you know what it feels like to smoke pot. You watch porn, you know what that feels like. All the different things that a person does creates these roads in your mind. But you're a good guy. So you do tshuva. So you go into your mind and you close that road. I am not watching movies anymore. I am not smoking up anymore. I am not getting drunk anymore. I am not dealing with girls anymore. I'm not watching porn. I'm done. I'm in yeshiva. I'm a new guy. Closing the roads. So you go back into that psyche and you close the road. And you put those orange little, you know, things. Road closed. You might have a piece of wood across with the stop. Road closed. You have the cones across. You're a tzaddik. You did it. Amazing. See, Rebbe? I used to be like that. But I'm not like that anymore. Close the road. The problem is as follows. The problem is what Akash Baruch is telling us in Pasha Bishalach. And the problem is that the road stays closed as, as long as everything is good. I'm in yeshiva. I'm surrounded. Things are going good. Road's closed. I don't do this stuff anymore. I did this when I was 16. The problem is now we get married and we get older and we're going through trauma. Your wife's not talking to you or she's talking too much to you. I'm kidding. I know the lady. Your panasa, your panasa is not doing good. One of your children, Chatzvashom, just got sick and all of a sudden you're in a place that you used to be in and you go through your psyche looking for an escape from that pain and you see all these roads that are closed and you're like, I remember that time when I drank Shabbos, I didn't feel anything, it took me away from this world and you see this road that's closed and you're like, just one time, I'm just going to go back down that road one time, that's all. I just have a problem today. I'm under pressure. I'm just going to go down this one time. What's the Super Bowl party? I'm just going to get, you know, I'm just this one time. And I'm going to be good after that. I promise. So you move the cones. My block in Muncie, where we lived, they were always fixing the sewers in the road. So they always had those cones. So what do you think? I'm going to stay. I'm not going to go home. I got out of my car. I took the orange cones. I moved them to the side. I pulled up. I put them back. And I went to my driveway. So once there's that road in your psyche, so you can move those cones, and we move those cones. Avera, Guerreras, Avera. We move those cones. And we go back down that road. And that's called relapse. Because now we did it again. And the next time with trauma, we do it again. And then all of a sudden, we like that place. We like that road. And we don't even get to put the cones back. So yes... Drinking one time and getting drunk is too much. 
because you created a road that you know that you can go back down. I never in my life, Baruch Hashem, never in my life got drunk. Ever. And the reason I didn't get drunk for the, until I was married was because I was a hockey player and all I cared about was I wanted to become a professional hockey player and I didn't, I, no drugs, no drinking, no girls, no nothing. I lived hockey. My hockey stick was my life. My skating, my games was my life. But Hashem, Hashem put me into sports and that's all I did. I didn't learn. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't. Why are you happy about that? I was such an Amaretz. I'm bearing, I'm bearing my soul. The, re- the Rosh Hashim is going to appreciate this. I was such an Amaretz that when I got married, I went to get a job as a Rebbe because I didn't know how to learn. Hey, Kuf. Okay. Oh, there you go. Kuf, hey, 105 Sukkot of Pasha's bow. Hockey. Okay. <laughs> so I decided, I, I didn't have the zit flash to sit in Kailo after I got married, so I decided that, you know what, I'm going to go teach kids that aren't from. They don't know much. And I, <laughs> I became the eighth grade Rebbe. I practiced a little bit Chumash, a little bit this, a little bit that. I learned Bob Matia, Eil Matia Shalom. Never got past the first Mishnah. Purple Will, Strings of Fish, I remember it by heart. So I went to my first, I went to, I'll never forget, I came to Yeshiva, to the first place I went to get a job. So the Rosh Yeshiva, the elementary school, he put out the paper, the application. I filled it out. So he asked me, what are you learning now? Right? So I wrote Gemara. Gimel Mem Resh Hey. So he said, you want to teach Gemara, you don't even know how to spell it. So that was where I came from. So I was really not, um, I, w- I was not really learning that much, but sports was my thing, and, and it was hockey, it was basketball, whatever, whatever. It was sports all day and all night. I never followed sports. I wasn't, there was no avoid desire. I played sports. Wasn't interested in watching some guy who doesn't like me, who doesn't care about me, who wouldn't visit me in the hospital if I'm sick. Who are you? You know, what, what, what are you? Like, hello? And, and, and the biggest guys in sports were saying, like, I'm not a role model, right, Charles Barkley? I'm not a role model. I'm an animal. I'm like, so I should have you on the wall, like, whatever. One of my Tamid that was in love with, not in love, but his main thing, his whole room was plastered with Patrick Ewing, right? <laughs> Patrick Ewing for the Knicks. He was a big guy. You could, he, you could, yeah, whatever. Anyway, so, so this kid was eighth grader in my class, and he was like Patrick Ewing, Patrick. So his whole wall was Knicks, 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 Patrick Ewing. So he asked for his bar mitzvah, if he could, they were coming from back from a, from a, in those days, they got into the like championship once in a while, not now. Now it's, now it's you know, uh, the non existence anymore. You should know, so I want to tell you something. You guys, not all of you are in sports, but when I was a Knicks fan, so there were these two guys. One was Charlie Ward, and one was Houston, and they made very nasty anti Semitic um, statements against the Jews. Very, very nasty. It was very public. From that day, that Alan Houston and, and this guy made those statements, they have not been in the playoffs. They're finished. You don't mess with us. Don't mess with us. Okay? They're done. They're finished. They're over. Anyway, so so he, he, he asked for his bar mitzvah. They were coming back from the championship that his parents should take him to the game, to the to the where the plane lands, 
in the morning. They were landing at 5 o'clock in the morning in, Ken- in Kennedy. And his whole dream was, for his bar mitzvah, he should get a basketball signed by Patrick Ewing. So this kid, 13 years old, for his bar mitzvah, is standing there. They got up at 4.30. 5.30 in the morning, they're standing there in Kennedy Airport by the gate where the Knicks are coming out. And all the Knicks are coming out, and you just can imagine a 13-year-old Jewish kid, his whole life is Patrick Ewing. He's holding this ball, and this big Patrick Ewing, I don't want to, you know, because this is, this is live, so i got to be careful what I say. This big guy comes walking out, and this little Jewish kid, who was my student, a little Jewish kid looks up at him. He was like 7, 6, 8, 6, 10. He says, Mr. Ewing, Mr. Ewing, it's my bar mitzvah. Could you sign my ball? I don't sign anything for Jews. That's what he said. Please, I don't sign anything for Jews. Who cares about your bar mitzvah? Just walk by him. Kid was broken. Broken. And he came to Yeshiva and said, Broken? Now you know what this is all about. This was his Avaita Zara. I said, The Avaita Zara just told you that you Jews, right, are not supposed to serve Elukim Acherim. You're not supposed to serve Elukim Acherim. You're only supposed to care. And that was it. And now, all over the walls, now he put up Rosh Hashivas and G'dayel. And <laughs> I told him, put some pictures of me on the wall. I'm kidding. Anyway. So, so Baruch Hashem, because of that, I never drank. I never got drunk. And then after, I, now that at my age, all the secrets that I know about everybody will be the worst thing if I ever got drunk. Because then I would tell everyone what I really think of them. Okay, anyway. So, Baruch Hashem, I had no drugs and no drinking. I don't know what it feels like. I have no idea. I have no idea what it feels like to get drunk. I have no idea. Some guys are saying, all right, we have pity on you. I understand. Okay. Well, I don't understand what it means to do drugs. I never did it. I don't understand it. I've never had that feeling. But I can tell you one thing. If I did, I'm the guy who is so impulsive, who is so full of energy. If I did, I wouldn't be standing in front of you today. I'd be in a rehab or I'd be dead. Because I would do it over and over and over and over and over and over. Because that's my personality. So Baruch Hashem, Hashem saved me. He knew, I, he knew what I was. I don't have that road. So when I'm going through stuff, it's not the road that's in my head. It doesn't exist. So it's not like I go past the road and it says road closed and I know that I could move that. I don't know what it means to feel that, those feelings. So there is no such road in Rabbi Wallenstein's psyche. Not because I'm a tzaddik, because it just never happened. So I have other roads. Yeah, I'll go play ball. I'll go work out. I'll go play my drums. I got other roads. I was a drummer. Yeah, I'll go play my drums. They're set up in my house. doesn't matter. But there is no such road as drugs. doesn't exist because I don't know what it feels like. Therefore, there's no trigger. I wasn't a slave. The Jews were slaves. So they're going to see a war. They're going to run back to their stuff, to their drugs. Listen to the Torah. They said to my Rabbeinu, we want to go back to our masters, to our fish, to our watermelon. To our cucumbers. What is wrong with you guys? You're nuts. You're crazy. I'm taking you to Eretz Yisrael. I'm taking you to, I'm taking you to Matantaira. I'm taking you to the land that I promised your forefathers. You want to go back to some cucumbers? And to some watermelon? How does anyone in this room understand? Oh, it was the Jews. You know who these people were? You know what level Dorhamabu was? Bunch of watermelon eaters? Bunch of cucumber eaters? What's going on over here? And the answer is, they had those roads. When they were slaves, they had those roads, watermelon. Oh my gosh, I'm thirsty, I'm starving, I'm a slave. And I got watermelon. So he's got this, in his hand, he's got this road, watermelon. It's your savior. 
It's the same thing as drugs. If you never did drugs, you're like, kid, what are you doing? You're so special. You're so smart. You're a nice guy. Why are you on heroin? I talk to these kids. Why are you smoking up? What are you doing to your brain? What's wrong with you? It's like watermelon. You don't understand, Rabbi Wallace. It's my watermelon. It's the exact same thing as Clydesville. It's here in the Torah. It's not funny. It's sad. It's tragic. When you read the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu saying, we're going to Hasina, we're going to Israel, and they're saying, I need meat between my teeth. I need a steak. What is wrong with you? And you have sheep. And you have animals. You can have a barbecue. No. I don't want to spend my money. I want free meat. What is this? What's going on in the Torah? What's happening? How do you guys learn these parshas? How do you understand the Jewish nation? You look down upon them. Yeah, we wouldn't do that. Those people did it. We wouldn't do that. You know what Dharamabha was? There's no one in this room that comes to their nails on their toes. Because they had these roads created in their psyche and they couldn't get out of it. So it sounds very sad. You mean Rabbi Wallstein, if I ever got drunk, I'm done? Sometime in my life, 10 years after I'm married, my wife's going to find me drunk? My wife's going to find me on drugs? Because life can't go perfect. So I'm done, Rabbi Wallstein. I'm finished? What am I going to do? So I'm going to give you the answer. And the sad part is that Klai Yisrael in the end, none of them made it into Eretz Yisrael. They all died in the Midbar from ages 20 and up. Hashem said, that psyche of being a slave is so ingrained in you, you cannot go into Eretz Yisrael. Only the kids that were under 20 years old, the only two that made it into Eretz Yisrael was Kalei ben Yefuna and Yeshua ben Nun. So in the end, it's very scary that the whole Klai Yisrael couldn't make it in because they had all those roads was so deep in Mitzrayim, you could not get into Eretz Yisrael. It's addiction. So deep into drugs. They have a family, they have money, they have kids, they have so much in their life, and they can't stop shooting up, snorting up, smoking up. And like, what is wrong with you? There's so much to lose. So whoever didn't ha- did not start these behaviors that's in this room, don't do it once. Because once it's there, it's a road. And that road is closed, but you're going to have stuff in your life. You're going to go back to that road. My mother-in-law who came through the Holocaust, who marched from Poland to Siberia, who lost everybody on that march. All they did in those days, you know what women did in those days? They used to say Tehillim. They were Tehillim zuggers. They didn't learn in Beis Yaakov. They didn't go to school. They just read Tehillim. All they did was read Tehillim. That's all they did. They were Tehillim zuggers. This massive highway in their head. And when things are wrong, when people are dying on a march to Siberia, take your little Tehillim baby and Davin. That's all she did. She was a little kid. Her mother gave her a Tehillim and said, just zuck Tehillim. So today, my mother-in-law, she should have a Rikas Yamin. Amen. Anytime anything's wrong in the family, she's saying Tehillim. Because the road in her psyche that was created when there's pain and trauma. What road do I go to? I go to Tehillim. That's there forever. That's there forever. So the guy who creates the road that he goes, when things are bad, he goes and opens a safer. And that's the road that's going to be in his head forever. And instead of going into drugs, into movies, into all these things that are just going to hurt him, he'll go to a place of Tyra. All the Gedalim, whenever they were sick, that's what they did. They opened the safer. 
I just heard about Rav Steiner. Rav Steiner was in the hospital. You should have a full shleim a week ago. And the doctor said to me, he had pneumonia the third time, and he's so frail. And the doctor said, you should know, Rabbi, that you're living on miracles. And Rav Steiner looked at the doctor and said, so are you. <laughs> That's what you need to create in your head. So the question is, Rabbi Wallace, what am I going to do? I did smoke. I did drink. Whatever with girls. Whatever I watched. So I'm done. I got this road in my head, and I'm doing so good in yeshiva. And you're telling me you came here to yeshiva today to tell me to be meyayish. I'm done. I got this road. I'm finished. I'm going to end up there, maybe not this year, in 10 years, maybe in 15 years, but I'm going to go back to Wall Street. I'm done, I'm finished, what am I going to do? So I'm going to bear my soul. I've spoken about this before, I don't know if I've spoken about this here. <coughs> my wife doesn't like that I speak about it, but I believe very much. Dovin HaMelech wrote in Tehillim, whatever he was challenged with Bathsheba, he says very clearly in a capital to Hillel. He says what he what he was challenged with. He talks about it openly, and he wants us to learn from him. So I had an addiction, and my addiction was gambling. And for 15 years, I was one of the biggest gamblers in America. I was flown to Vegas. I was flown to Lake Tahoe. I was flown to places, private jets. I'm not going to get into the whole thing. I was huge. I never stole money from anyone. I had Bakshem a good business. I just loved the game. I loved blackjack. I loved the rush. I loved beating the, the house. It was just an addiction, an addiction, an addiction. And 17 years ago, right, a little bit more, 18 years ago, right before my father died, my father did not know about it. My mother did not know about it. My wife knew about it. Um, it was, I didn't ask borrow money from anyone, and I was doing pretty well crazy stories I can keep you up all night I'm not going to tell you those stories because no I'll tell you why because the real tshuva the real tshuva is that when you did something wrong that when you talk about it it disgusts you I still talk about it and I'm like wow you got to hear this story (laughs) so when I've done the real tshuva and talking about it disgusts me that's when I'll talk all those stories. Right now, I got crazy stories that I'll be like, you guys will be like, wow, we like, we like you till now. Now we really like you. <laughs> but Akash Baruch Hu knew what I needed to do in my life. And we used to have a minion in my house in Muncie on a Friday night. And for some reason, I was late. And I went next door. There was another minion there. It was a Friday minion. And I... Um, they, they wait between Mincha and Meirev. They don't daven right away. Not like Ashkenazim. And there was some Sforum there. So I was waiting anyway. I pulled out a Sefer called the Kavayasha. I never saw the Sefer before in my life. I opened it up. I just opened it up like the opening of Chumash. I just opened it up. And this is what it said. When God created the world... He promised the Satan that whatever God can give the world, the Satan can give the world. It has to be a very even match, otherwise it's not fair. The Satan came to Hashem and said, you have the key to Parnassah, you have the key to money, you're going to reward everyone who does good with money. I don't have any money. So Akash said to the Satan, you have as much money as I do. It doesn't come from the same place, it comes from a very bad place, but you have the Koyach to reward the people who do bad. 
and he says now we understand that in the Torah says that Esna Zaina that a prostitute who becomes a Baal Shuva and she's got a big a big bank account from her prostitution and she wants she's good now she's a Tzadikistan and she wants to buy Karbanos to, to ask forgiveness from Hashem the Torah says we don't want your carbon we don't want any part of your carbon even though you're Tzadikistan the money came from a bad place and he explains that gambling and stealing right we see people steal a lot of money people open on Shabbos they're doing very very well then they close on Shabbos, they become like Jews. They, they, they're not doing very well. So it seems to be, where does that money come from? Hashem gives money to people at Machal Shabbos? Hashem gives money to drug, drug dealers? These guys, the Colombians, have billions of dollars. So the Kabbalah says that money comes from the Satan. And anyone who receives money from the Satan, that money, whatever it's, whatever it's used for, goes to the Satan. So if a guy steals money and he gives it to the yeshiva, all the learning in the yeshiva goes to the other side. And he explains that the other side has no chiyas. And Avera, you think an Avera gives the other side life. It doesn't. An Avera is cold and dark. It has no energy whatsoever. The way the other side gets its life and energy is from people like this who do bad things and then give the money to Kailo and Sadiqim and Seyfetaira and all these other things. Anything that's done through that money goes to them, gives them chiyas. Therefore, the Kabayasha says that if you gamble, you think Hashem is in the casino playing blackjack with you. Like what? Right? You're on a run? Oh, God, you're with me? Even though it says that there's more tefillah in a casino than on Yom Kippur because everybody's praying. God, if you give me this, if you give me the right card, I'll do this. I'll do Everyone's praying. The whole place is praying. Even atheists are praying. But the truth is, so the, the money that you make in gambling... That money, whatever you do with it, whatever you do with it, you buy Shabbos cloth, you buy any, whatever that is, all that stuff goes to the Sultan. And, says the Kaviyosha, when you die, since he, he was my finest you, since he supported you, you belong to him. He takes you to the seventh level of Gehenna, the Tahayim, and there you are forever. No Kaddish, no 11 months, nothing. I'm like, cards, gambling is now over. <laughs> because I'm not stupid. And I, I, I said, I opened this Kabayosha. I never learned it. Then I learned the whole Kabayosha, translated it into English. I, I teach it all the time. Kabayosha is an unbelievable safer. If you're not willing to change your life, don't read it. Because <laughs> if you read it, you're going to change your life. So I'm sitting there and I'm like, I got chips that I didn't cash yet, right, in my box. Like, what am I going to do with this stuff? And that day I stopped. That Shabbos was the last time I ever, ever touched a car, looked at a car. I won't even fly and stop in Vegas over to go to California. Nothing, zero, no Hanukkah, nothing, zero. Because any money you make from gambling goes to them, and then he gave you Mazaynais, he supported you, he has you for life. So I'm not stupid. If I go to a casino and I lose money, so I'm an idiot. <laughs> if I go to a casino and I win money, I'm a partner with the Satan. That money came from, I'm not interested. So I stopped on the dime. That much, it was gone, it was over. And I got letters and letters from all the casinos. Where are you? You know, did you go to, did you go offshore? They all think I'm cheating on them, right? I'm going somewhere else, right? Where'd you go? Where'd you go? And I said, it's God. I remember a very big casino in Vegas called me up and said, Steve, where are you? I said, it's God. He said, I'll never forget what he said. He goes, yeah, that usually lasts about two months. <laughs> so so, so what, what do I do with that road? I got that road, guys. Huge road that I closed. Great stories. Millions of dollars. 
one way, the other way. Crazy stuff. Helicopters, private jets. I mean, floors, landing in front, on, on hotel roofs. People looking like thinking that, I'm not going to say Trump, because I don't know if I want to say Trump, but whatever. I mean, it, was, it was a power trip. Crazy power trip. I got this huge highway in my head, gambling. How do I know? I'm not going back there. Yeah, I closed it. All right, so I won't give the money to Yeshiva Tzedakah. I'll make the money, I'll buy something, I need whatever, a car. You know? What's you going to get from that? Every mitzvah that I take someone in that car. So how do I know I'm not going back there? I know I'm not going back there. How do I know I'm not going back there? Because I created a road that's much closer to me when I turn around and I'm in trouble. I created a super highway, but the minute I'm in trouble and I turn around, I never get to that road 17 years ago when I was gambling. The road that I created is helping Klausel, is helping kids, is creating a high school for girls that nobody cares about, is creating a rehab, the first one of its kind, the ranch in, 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 um, up in the mountains in Bethel that doesn't exist in the Jewish world. And I don't stop because I know that as long as I create this huge highway that I'm, that I'm in Kleisrael and I'm working and that's my, that's my drug. I need to help. I need to change things. I need to help people who don't believe in themselves. That's my drug. I'm never going to get past that. I'm never going to get down the road to see that, that road that's closed called gambling. I'm not going there because I created something huge in front of it. So yes, there's a way out. There's no way to get rid of that road. I can tell you that right now. What you did in your life, it's there. It's there. You did true, but it's closed. Baruch Hashem. It's there, though. And that's Avera Guerrero's Avera. When you did that Avera, and you know what it feels like, then you created a road that that Guerrero's Avera, if you're going to get into trouble again, it's going to bring you right back to that Avera. Not Avera Guerrero's Avera. It's going to create a new Avera. Avera Guerrero's Avera. You do that Avera, then it's going to be over and over and over. That's relapse. Avera Guerrero's Avera is relapse. The same Avera. Everyone thinks, if do this Avera, it's going to make me do the other Avera. Me, Machal Shabbos, when he eat trays. No. People are very, very, you know, careful with certain Averas and not with others. Avera, Guerreras, Avera. It's going to be Guerreras, the same Avera. Mitzvah, the road is saying to Hillim. The road is learning. Then when you're going through trouble, Guerreras, Mitzvah. You're going to go back to that road. That's what the Mishnah is saying. So you can't close the road. No, you can't. You can close it, but you can't get rid of it. But you can build a super highway in front of it. Why am I taking a local road full of potholes and have a super beautiful eight highway. Eight lane highway. And this is what happened to Klai Yisrael. And Pasha's Mishalach. Hashem said they have this road called Mitzrayim. And the only way to get past that road is by getting the Torah. If I give them the Torah and they keep the Torah and they create that road so big, then the Mitri is going to be out of them. And guess what? When they came to fight... The seven nations, seven nations, the Canaanim were warriors, Yavusi and Prizi, the seven nations of Eretz Yisrael. No problem, Meshuvah Mitzrayim. Nobody went back to Mitzrayim. They fought the seven nations. Nobody went back to Mitzrayim. They didn't have that problem of relapse. I want to tell you a story. Don't focus on the gambling. You know, I just had this guy 
Last Shabbos, Rabbi, we had a Shabbaton. 800 people. Four, like 500 girls and then families. 800 people. This guy got up to speak and he told his, life, his whole life story and everyone's like, wow, and he about Tshuva and he changed and wow, and amazing. And he was told, you know, in the beginning he said like, I was, I was, oh, I had tattoos and everything. What happened at the end of this year? He was amazing, his whole life and how he changed and everything. They all woke up and say, could we see your tattoos? I'm like, that's what you got out of this whole story? You want to see his tattoos? So it's not, don't walk out, well, Robert Wallace was a gambler. That's not what this is. That's not what this is about. You know what I'm saying? And don't think that you can do the same thing and get out of it. Because opening a Kava Yasha on a, on, a, on a mincha that I missed, and on a Gashbach who placed it, I thank him. I don't know what I was Zoycha, because as you know, gamblers in the end lose everything. You lose your family, you lose your home, you lose everything. You do, you lose everything. Because you keep thinking you're going to win. It's like drugs. It's worse than drugs, actually. I think the worst, the worst addiction is gambling because you can win. When you're a drug addict, you know you're doing something wrong. All the other addictions, you know at the end of the day, I'm not healthy, I'm doing something wrong. When my friends try to stop me, I'm like, you're jealous, I just bought a car, cash. Hope the IRS is not listening. <laughs> I'm like, you guys are just jealous. You can win. An addiction where you can win, you never get out of. And then all those beautiful hotels and workers, that's not from winning. I, I know people, you know, after I spoke about this, I spoke about this a while back on, a, on, a, on one of my shiurim that went totally viral. And it was called rationalization. How everybody rationalized, you could do the worst thing and you could rationalize it. And then there were some people that called me and said, Red Wallstein, you made the biggest mistake of your life. You have so many followers. You're going to lose respect. And that's when I did the whole David Amelech share. That David Amelech wasn't scared of it. And he was a lot greater than I was. And he laid his heart out wide in the open. So, hello, Yehuda put out. Yehuda said, it was me. He put it out there in front for all of us to see. So I'm like... You know, everybody rationalized. My rationalization was, I had rational, by the way, I was a tzaddik. Don't think I was gambling and thinking that I'm bad. No, no, I was gambling. I was the biggest tzaddik in the world. Why? Why was that tzaddik? Because the Gemara says, you're not allowed to gamble because, number one, you're stealing from another Jew. He doesn't want to lose. If he knew for sure that every time he sits with you, he's going to lose, he's not coming. So he doesn't really want to lose, even though he says he doesn't care. Of course, everybody cares. You come to win. You're a gambler. You come to win. So it's Geneva, number one. Number two, you're destroying the world. If everyone gambles, who's going to make shoes? Who's going to plant for food? So Gemara says, there's two things. These two things are the reason you can't gamble. I'm like, well, number one, I don't play with Jews. I go to casinos. Belongs to New Jersey. Belongs to Nevada. Belongs to Goyim. So I'm not taking any money from any Jews. That's number one. Number two, I don't do this for a living. It's a hobby. Gemara's talking about when you're a gambler for a living. But it's a hobby. I have people working for me. I have factories. Really, I have a lot of people working for me. So I'm not hurting the yeshiv of the oilam. So I right away rationalized. And on top of that, I was the biggest tipper. Because <laughs> I felt, I never went without a yarmulke. I sat with my yarmulke. I was called the gentleman Jew. That's what they called me. I didn't drink. There was no talking to any girls or women or anything at a private table. I was the gentleman Jew. And one night on one shift, don't get crazy, but on one shift, because I was doing so well, I tipped $120,000. So the whole shift, at the end of the shift, right, from 4 o'clock in the morning, I sat at the table, and the whole shift, all the guy on the whole shift, you're talking 100 people who divide all the tips. doesn't go to the dealer, it gets divided. Every single one of them, I sat there in my chair because now they're doing the shift change, so you got like 20 minutes, and they lined up, 
Mr. Wallerstein. I cannot thank you a month. Now I can buy what I needed for my house. Now I can pay for my kid's tutor. I sat there. I am God. <laughs> Hashem, don't you love me? You know the guy who say Jews are cheap? And look at all these people who are like, look at that guy with the thing on his head. Wow, and his strings hanging out of his pants. Wow, he's, a, he's an Orthodox Jew. And look at this. Look, he, he saved my life. I sat there, I was like, Ganeiden! And God's screaming, Gehenum! What is a, a Rebbe doing in a casino where women are half-dressed, the people that come are drinking, they're lowlifes. What are you doing there? I'm doing a mitzvah! I'm tipping everyone! So I gave a share called Rationalization, how we could do the biggest sins in the world and make them right. I have dealt in my life with some things. I had this woman, there was a whole situation and a whole case, whatever it was, and she was an anxious ish, and she was committing adultery. It was a whole crazy thing. And they asked me to talk to her, whatever it was, and I, I know her. I know her. I happen to know her from, the, from, from where I live. And I said to her, what are you doing? You have five children. What are you doing with this mushchis? What are you doing? They had her going into a hotel. They didn't have pictures of actually the room, but they had her going to the hotel, coming out. We knew what was going on. There was nothing to it. The Rabbanim asked me to talk to her. I said, just explain to me. I like to understand what goes through a person's mind. I said, you have five children and a husband. What? It, it doesn't matter? Is what she says to me. Dr. Wallerstein, you do not understand. You cannot understand. He is my bashert. I said, he's your bashert? Yes, he is my soulmate. And this is what Hashem wants. I'm saying, it's adultery. <laughs> this is adultery. She goes, well, if Hashem, listen to this. If Hashem didn't want this, why did he put him to live three houses away from me? If he wasn't my basher, and God didn't want this to happen, why didn't he live ten blocks away from me? He lives three houses away from me. We see each other all the time. I'm telling you, this is what Hashem wants. Sitting in my room, talking to me, looking at me, committing adultery. Committing the worst sin, one of the three. And this woman is looking at me and she needs it. So I said, if this was the one that was Bashar, then why would Hashem let you marry your husband? Because I don't know, it was a mistake. Like God doesn't make mistakes. Could you imagine how many times in our head we do stuff and we make a, a, the worst Aveira into the biggest mitzvah? That was my whole shia called rationalization. And they got, oh, Reverend Wallstein, you shouldn't have told it. You lowered your eyes. I'm like, listen, this is who I am. This is what I am. You don't want to be my student because of it. Hey, no problem. I'm very secure with who I am. I have no problem putting on the table what I went through and how I grew. And therefore, anyone who went through the same stuff, you can be much bigger than I am. And anyone who didn't be, wasn't a gambler, you can be crazy much bigger. And anyone who learned when they were 20 years old, knew how to spell Gemara with an owl instead of a hey, you can really be bigger than I am. That's right. That the Gemara stands for get to move out with Rabbi Hockey. <laughs> the rabbi stuck on my hockey. 
Huh? That's that's right. I don't know. It could be hockey. Is hockey spelled with a chaf or a kuf? Not hechi. It's hockey. Okay. Tomorrow's Rashi Tavis. Get moving, Rabbi Hockey. All right. And if it was an Aleph, with an Aleph, it wouldn't work. That's why, that's right. 100%. See, if I were to come here to be a Rebbe in, in this yeshiva, you would have given me a job. You see? Okay. So the question is, we'll end with this. The question is, the question is, how come it doesn't happen most of the time? How come we have dreams as young kids, and even as older Bachman, we have these dreams of who we want to be, and what we want to do, and who we could be, it just doesn't happen. The best story I ever heard on this, I'm about to tell you. So there was a young boy, I don't know if I said it here, I don't think I said it here, I asked Willie, and maybe he wasn't listening, so I'm not sure. <laughs> so there was this young boy who got a job, he was only 20, 19 years old, he got a job on Wall Street, although you all know where Wall Street is, that's where the other gamblers are. <laughs> legal gambling, legal gambling. Oh, it never goes down, it never goes down, okay. Anyway, so he got this job, mailroom. Mailroom in a big brokerage, but he was so happy to be on Wall Street. Anyway, his first day at work, he's going to the exchange. I don't know if you've ever been on Wall Street, he's going to exchange. And they have all these big fancy restaurants, you know, on that, on that street. And he goes past this restaurant, and he sees in the window is a bottle of wine. And like the whole window is dressed with this bottle of wine. So he goes up to the window, and he looks at the bottle of wine. And on the label, it's French, and then it says 1885. A bottle of wine from 1885? He says, I can't believe there's such an old bottle of wine. Knocks on the door. The major D comes out. How can I help you, kid? We don't need, we don't need anybody. No busboys. We, we, we we're not looking for help. He goes, no, no. Is there wine in that bottle? He says, 100%. How, how, how much would it cost to buy that bottle? He says, kid, just scamper on. Come on, come on. This is not for you. You're a kid. He goes, I just want to know. I just want to tell my friends. How much is it? He goes, $10,000 cash. Okay, goes back. It, it, it's bothering him. This bottle is bothering him. Comes back the next day. He looks at, through the window at the bottle. And he's like, "Now you listen to me. One day you're going to be mine. I am going to work and work until I get you." That maitre d told me to scamper. I'll teach him a lesson. I will own you. And this goes on for a year. Every day he goes to work, and he's talking to this bottle. You are the... He thinks he's, he's getting married. You are the most beautiful bottle I have ever seen. I cannot wait to your mind. And in his head, he's thinking, I'm going to take this bottle, and I'm going to open it, and I'm going to... He knows a little bit about wine, and I'm going to smell the cork... And then after I smell the cork, of course, I'm going to say it's great. And then I'm going to take the wine, but I'm not going to drink it all at one time. I'm going to drink a little bit. I'm going to swish it around my glass. I'm going to drink a little bit. I'm going to taste it. Oh, he was dreaming. Fantasy. And the fantasy got deeper and deeper and deeper. And every day, the major you see me sugar talking to this bottle of wine. <laughs> and after a year and a half of working, the boss in the stockbroker comes over to him and says, Michael... You have been doing an amazing job. Always on time, meticulous. 
we're going to bring you up to become a stockbroker. We're going to train you, but just to show you that we believe in you, here's an envelope as a bonus. And he takes this envelope to his little office, and he opens it up, and it's all hundred dollar bills. One thousand, two thousand, three thousand, five thousand. He begins to shake. Six thousand, seven, eight thousand, nine thousand, ten thousand. She's mine. She is mine. He puts it into his pocket. His mom is shaking. He's not going to go there today. No, no, no. This is going to be a wedding. <laughs> so he goes home that night and he calls up the tuxedo company. He's like, listen, I'd like to rent a tuxedo. Could you please send me size whatever, a 36 tuxedo with all everything that it has. I want, I want like the perfect tuxedo. Also, you've got those patent leather shoes. I want those patent leather shoes. I'm size 10. And he gives him the whole thing. Zeller tuxedo. They're going to deliver it. He calls up a limousine company. says, tomorrow night at 7 o'clock, I want you in front of my house. We're going to this and this restaurant. He calls up the restaurant. He says, I would like to make reservations. 7.30. How many people? One. One? One. Where would you like to sit? I'd like to sit facing the wine you have in the window. She hangs up the phone. She tells the manager... Weird guy just called. <laughs> He's coming alone and he wants to look at the bottle of wine. But, you know, they're weird people, but okay. Next night, gets dressed up. You can imagine, guy's getting married, gets dressed up. Back, greases back his hair. He's shaved. He looks great. He looks amazing. Right? He's got his tuxedo on. This is, listen, this is his dream. This is his fantasy. This is all he could think about. He was, this is his whole year, his whole year and a half. This is all he could think about. Gets into the limo, gets into the back, tips the guy from the work that he did before that. Right? They pull up to the restaurant. Major G comes out. Limo shows up. That's a big tip. Right? Limo shows up. Guy gets out. Of course, he doesn't recognize the kid. He's in a tuxedo. He hears Grease back. Right? He walks in and like, you're the one that called. Yes. And they put him in this one table facing the bottle of wine. And he sits down. He knows nothing about restaurants. He's never been to a restaurant. Right? She brings in the menu. It's all in French. Doesn't understand one word that it's saying. He says to her, listen, I've never really been into a, I've been to a French restaurant. If you could do me a favor, just, you know, pick out what you really think is good. She goes, okay, we have this and this appetizer, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no problem. And the soup says, oh, okay. And this is the main dish. Okay, whatever you think is good, whatever it is. And dessert, oh, yeah, this is also great. That's, that's Italian. Italian in a, in a French restaurant. I don't know what's going on. Okay. <laughs> anyway, fine. Sits down. I want to use a chumash. Anyone have a notebook? Yeah, you got a notebook. Give a notebook for a second. <laughs> I don't really like Rabbi Wallace, do you? <laughs> anyway, so, so the, the waitress walks over to him. He's sitting there now, all fancy, looking at the bottle. Well, she walks in. She says, Sir, would you like anything from our wine list? Nice, right? And he looks at it, $55, $75, $155, $250. He goes, I need something better than this. That bottle in the window, how much is that? She goes, no, you know, that bottle, our whole restaurant's built around that bottle. It's not really for sale. I mean, it's a lot of money if you really want to buy it. She says, just tell me, how much is it? She goes, it's $10,000 cash. He says, you can have your wine with back at your house. Yeah. A prop man. Good half of the prop man. I picked the right notes, Brother Sam. Anyway, so I just glanced at them. 
So she says $10,000. He says, no problem. She goes, yeah, but you have to pay for it up front. We're not going to take the bottle, give it to you, and then you're going to stiff us. you got to pay for it up front. He goes, well, of course. He takes out the envelope. He says, they counted in the kitchen. Check it out. And then Maitre G comes running over. What's going on? He just bought the bottle of wine. Maitre G, really? Let me look. Look, $10,000. They're thinking, this guy's going to tip them at the end. First of all, Right, eighty percent, ten thousand dollars is on the bill there, so it's, not, it's a nice tip. This is going to be a big one, right? And so he's sitting there. The major says, "Listen, sir, we're going to get you the bottle, but it's it's in the window. It's window dressed. We have to take it out slowly. We have to put another bottle in there. We got to get the right people to come up because it has to stay dressed. The window. It's going to take us, if you don't mind, about an hour to get you that bottle of wine." He says, I'll, I'll sit here all night. No problem. I've been, I've been waiting for this girl for a year and a half. I have no problem. Okay? No problem. So they bring him the appetizer. Meanwhile, the waitress wants to really get on his right side. She goes, listen, $10,000 bottle of wine. The wine is on the house tonight. Any other wine that you want. So for your appetizer, we'll give you some white wine. Sure, no problem. Give him a nice glass, a nice goblet of white wine. He doesn't know how to drink wine. He's, he never did this stuff. He just drinks it down like you drink soda, right? He takes it down, he eats the appetizer. Then they give him another wine. He comes to the main dish. Meanwhile, they're working on it. They give him a really good red wine with the meat, finishes a whole bottle of that. He is so blitzed. He is so drunk. Now they give him dessert. They give him sangria, like 19% alcohol. He is gone. He is so drunk, he doesn't even know what world he's in. And the waitress comes with the bottle. 1885. And she goes to him and she says, Sir, would you like to open the bottle? What kind of service in this restaurant? You have to open your own bottles? You guys can't open the bottle for me? She goes, No, no, I thought that you wanted to open it. He's dreaming his whole year and a half of opening that bottle. She opens the bottle. Would you like to take out the cork? What? That's it? You just know how to take the wrapping off? You don't even know how to take out the cork? What kind of restaurant did I come to? No, sir, we'll take out the cork, no problem. She takes out the cork, pops it out, right? She says, sir, would you like to smell the cork? He says, what, you think I'm stupid? All corks smell corky. <laughs> and he throws it across the room. She says... Okay, sir, there are some people, they like to smell the cork and open the bottle themselves, but no problem. Can I pour the wine for you? No. I can pour my own wine, lady. Give me the bottle. She gives him the bottle. He's so drunk. The wine goes here, and the wine goes there, and the wine goes all over his shirt and his tie and his tuxedo. There's not one drop of wine falls into the cup. You hate when that happens. I hear you. Well said. He hates when it happens. But at the end, the bottle is now empty. And there's no wine in the cup at all. And the waitress is looking at this poor fool, this poor drunk, $10,000, but she doesn't know the emotional buildup. She just knows the money that he wasted. And she says, maybe you want to save the bottle as a souvenir. And he looks at the bottle and he says, it looks very empty. And he starts shaking it into his cup 
like three drops, four drops fall into the cup. He says, this is a stupid bottle. There's nothing in it anyway. Smash smithereens. Boom. His head hits the table. Out. 11 o'clock. The major D shakes him and says, sir, Michael, you got to get up. You got to go. We're closing. We're closing. Picks up his head. Where's my bottle? I bought a bottle. I spent $10,000. I want my bottle. I want it now. They're like, Michael, you were drunk and you, 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 you broke it. You threw it. You, and they tell him everything that happened. Liars! Got nothing! He's like, got nothing to speak Hebrew, but whatever. Robbers! Thieves! I want my bottle! I gave you $10,000. You never gave me the bottle. Where is it? Like, no, you don't understand. You poor, look at you, look at you old, look what you look like. No, it was cheap wine that you gave me in the middle of the meat. That was what I poured. I want my bottle. I'm calling the police. Thieves! I'm going to tell everybody what kind of restaurant this is. He's going crazy. And the owner comes downstairs. He says, excuse me, sir. You think you're going to call the police? I'm going to call the police. No, you stole it. You never gave it. Give me my bottle. And the owner says, you want to see what happened to your bottle? Come upstairs with me. Everything in this restaurant is filmed. <laughs> so, he says, yeah, everything's filmed? Okay, I'll go up there. I'll take a look at it. So he goes upstairs. So he goes upstairs. Can anyone in this room imagine? You can't. Can anyone in this room imagine his hopes his hopes for that moment when he would finally get that bottle of wine and now he comes upstairs and he's going to watch this movie and he watches as he drinks cheap white wine, cheap red wine $35 wine, he drinks sangria, all these cheap wines and he watches himself get drunk and then he sees her approaching with the bottle he says, what happened now and he sees, everything's on audio everything's on video, exactly what he tells her I don't want to open it, uh, cork is corky, and, as, and he, as he's watching, as he's pouring, he's like, no stop, he's talking to himself on the screen stop, stop pouring it all over yourself, put some in the glass but of course he did it already he can't change it and he's watching his own movie, he's watching, he pours all the wine all over the place, except in the glass and she says, please sir, keep the bottle at least keep the bottle. He's like, no, I don't want it. He watches it slow motion fly across the room. <laughs> Smash into a hundred pieces. All his dreams, all his fantasies, all his plans, gone. And upstairs comes the waitress. And she says, sir, I kept the glass. You have three, four drops don't you want to just taste it? And he says, yes. And he drinks it and he tastes this one little two drops that he had there. And he realized how much pain that he lost everything. <clears throat> this is a story about all of us. We come to this world with an neshama to dream. Zaria says 500, 1,000 years sometimes the neshama can't wait. They're online to come down to this world. Tyra, mitzvahs! Bless you, Hashem, to be able to say that. The next world is nothing. It's waiting. It's dreaming. Fantasy. I'm going to be in this guy's body. I'm going to be in this guy's body. He's going to do mitzvahs. He's going to fill it. He's going to dive it. He's going to take Hashem. Oh, my gosh. 613 mitzvahs. I can't wait. The bottle of wine. The goof. I'm going to get it. And the person goes ahead. 
and he drinks all the cheap wine. The movies and all the garbage that the Satan sells us. And all our dreams, all our dreams that we want to be Rosh Hashim, we want to be a Rebbe, we want to be a good father, I want to get married, I want to be a good husband, I can't wait till I'm a husband, I can love someone, I can take care of someone, I can't wait till I'm going to be a father, I'm going to take care of my kids, I'm going to spend time with them. Oh my gosh, that bottle of wine, I can't wait, my plans, my fantasy. I'm going to bring up my children, I'm going to give them love. I'm never going to scream at them. My parents screamed at me. I'm not going to scream at them. I'm going to take them to the zoo. My parents never took me to the zoo. I'm going to read books to them. I'm going to do all these great things. Then you get married and you go to work or you, whatever you're doing. You have no time for anybody. And you pour the wine. You pour life. Because the wine is life. And you pour it all over the place. Accept it to your glass. And you come up after 120 years and God says, What happened? And you say to God, what do you want from me? You never gave me a chance. It's your fault. And God says, really? Let's watch the video. And you watch as you were busy with porn. You were busy with girls. And you're busy with gambling. And you're busy with drugs. And you're busy with drinking. And you're busy with Lashon Hara. And you're busy with politics. And you're busy with everything else. And you watch that movie. And you watch how you pour your life left and right, but nothing in the cup. And then you come up to Shemayim and you're pointing your fingers and you're falling on Shemayim. What are you talking about? Here's the video. You and Yeshiva, you slept till 10 o'clock. You missed davening. You didn't concentrate on anything. You were busy on your phone. You were busy here. What do you want from me? You were in the restaurant. The wine was there. You were drunk. You were so drunk and all the garbage of the world that the Satan is selling you. You missed the bottle. You missed your kids. You missed your wife. You missed your parents. You didn't take care of anybody. You didn't take care of yourself. And then one or two, three mitzvahs come up that are left in the glass. And you see the reward for the three, four mitzvahs that you did correctly. Like, oh my gosh, I had a whole bottle of them. And I poured it everywhere but in my glass. What a crazy, true story. What a crazy, true story. What a crazy, true lesson. You're in Yeshiva. You're in Yushalayim. You're in Eretz Yisrael. There's no bottle of wine worth more than that. The tire of Eretz Yisrael is so much more expensive than the tire of, of Chutzlars. And the tire of Yerushalayim is so much more valuable than the tire of the whole Eretz Yisrael. And you're sitting here 10 minutes from the Makam Shah, Shechina Shruyaba. That the, the Gemara says that Shechina is always there. And the wine is there and the wine is here. And you're pouring it out on garbage and stupidity. And then when it's too late, you say, I was cheated. They say, no, you weren't cheated. You cheated. We'll show you all the garbage that you drank, that you watched, that you looked at. You missed the cup every single time. And I'm not talking to you guys. I'm talking to me. I'm talking to me too. I had so many plans. I remember when I got married, my little kids would take them to the zoo. I'm going to take them to the circus. I'm going to take my little kids to play. I'm going to take them all over the place. And I just got busy. I just got so busy. I missed them. I don't know, didn't know them. I missed those years. You can't get them back. My father, Bashan, today's his yard side. He begged me. He begged me, Zachariah, come out once a week to Muncie. It's an hour. I want to learn with you. Let's finish a Masechta together. He begged me. I said, Ty, I don't have time. <coughs> Cat's in the cradle. I don't have time. 
And they died. And I can't go to Muncie. I didn't think he's going to die at 67 years old. I said, Dad, I will finish with you. Don't worry. You're going to live till 90. But he didn't. And I never made that trip to Muncie. And I never sat alert with him. I had the dream. I'm going to do it. And then I poured the wine. I poured my connection to my father a year. When the doctor told him three months. I'll never forget, I was sitting next to him. We were inseparable, me and my father. He was my Rebbe, he was my father, he was everything. I never loved another human being in the world as much as I loved him. We were connected, totally. I am him. I am a little teeny bit of him. And he's sitting there, he came from Eretz he couldn't swallow. And he went to the doctor and they did an endoscopy and the doctor came back. I'll never forget, I was sitting with him and the doctor said, you have cancer. And it's a very aggressive cancer. It's esophageal cancer. And my father said, where do you get cancer from, esophageal cancer? And they said, smoking or drinking. My father didn't drink. My father said, I used to smoke unfiltered cigarettes. He was in the army. But I stopped when I was 30. I'm 67. How could I get cancer from smoking? I stopped at 30. And the doctor said, cancer cells... Once you create them, they lay dormant. And the stuff that you created between ages of 16 and 30, they lay dormant. But so my father said, I'll never forget it. It's Zechariah, don't ever forget. It's from the stuff in the past. And the doctor said, you have three months. Could you imagine when a person is told you're not going to be here with your kids or grandchildren anymore in three months could you imagine a more traumatic moment in a person's life, there is none my father looked at the doctor and you know what he said can you guarantee me three months and the doctor said what are you saying Mr. Wallerstein he said you're God God doesn't guarantee me the next moment you're telling me for sure I'm going to live for three months that's amazing And the doctor looked at me and said, is he like normal? (laughs) I'm like, no, he's my father. You can guarantee him three months. It's the best news he ever heard in his life. We say every day, we don't know the next moment. The next moment is your last moment. In in walks this guy and says, you guarantee three months. That's how he took the news. You understand who this man was? So he took the news that you got three months. And I came to Eretz Yisrael. I'm saying it on his yard side. I came to Eretz Yisrael because I could not let that man die. He could not die. I came to Eretz Yisrael. I went to every Makobal, every Makobal, every Gadol, every Tzadik. And I went to the Kaisal. I'll never forget it, like now. And I just stood there and cried. I said the whole Tehillim. I said, Akash Baruch listen to me very carefully. <laughs> it, was, it was 18 years ago. So I was a Rebbe at that point for 20 years bringing kids who are not from back to HaKadosh Baruch He said, here's the deal. I learned from a Bnei Yisoski, don't ever ask for too much in tefillah. So I said, I'm not asking you to, to heal my father. I'm asking you that instead of three months, you give him a year. Happens all the time. Doctors say three months, people live a year and a half or longer. Give me a year because I want to go Wednesday to go learn with him. I want to do that year that, I, that he asked me for. I said, I'm trading in my 20 years as a Rebbe. I don't want any schar. I don't want any schus. Give it to whoever you want to give it to. I'm trading it in. I want one year. 
That's all I'm asking is one year. I came home, told my father, I had all kinds of all kinds of stuff. We smeared on him. I got from the Kubala, all kinds of every trick I tried, everything you would have Kameyas in water and then you know, whatever. <laughs> he died three months to the day. God didn't give me a minute. Trading in 20 years. God, I work for you. Now I'm asking you a favor. I asked you for a year. I didn't ask you for much. Three months? Maybe three and a half months. What's the deal? I came home. I sat Shiva. I called the rabbi in, in Crown Heights Yeshiva. And I said, I quit. I don't work for God no more. No more teaching. I'm going to be like all the other balabatim since I couldn't cash in my chips anyway. I guess they're not worth anything. So I'm done. And I told him to find another Rebbe. Finito. No more Rebbe. I'm going to make money. I'll write some checks. Why should I be a Rebbe? You can't cash it in. What am I doing it for? And I walked out for a week. And that whole week, I said, what, Dad, what would you want me to do? Would you want me to walk out of being a Rebbe because you died? No way. You would want me to do more than I've ever done before. So I went back to become a Rebbe and that week I opened Arnava for the first time. And everything since then that I've done, including standing here and talking to you guys, is only after he died. I was not a speaker before then. And I believe very much that the Kayach I have is coming from Shemaim. Of course, it's coming from Akash Baruch Hu, but I believe they can do it. It was my father. So you never give up, guys. There's no such thing as cashing in chips. For whatever reason, that was his time. But oh, do I miss that I didn't have that year. I was so busy with my stuff that I really didn't have to be busy with. I can't get it back. I stood in front of his grave today. With, there were 40 guys standing there davening. I said, I'm so sorry. All you wanted to do was learn with me. You didn't want money from me. You didn't want me to support you. You just wanted my time. And I... I wanted to give him my time, but the Sutton gave me so much cheap wine, so much stuff that I forgot about the bottle, forgot about life. Guys, don't forget about the bottle. All the other stuff is just to get you so drunk that you don't appreciate your kids, your parents, your rabbeim, your Torah, yourself. Yourself. You're all superstars. You can be whatever you want. Every single person in this room, I come from such a place, I couldn't spell Gemara at 20. There's no one in this room that could not spell Gemara at 20. If you are, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you just have to want. And the main thing, and I think Roshim will agree with me, the main thing is, focus on that bottle. Focus on your goal. Don't let him get you drunk. Just focus on what you want to be. You can be that. Tu Bishvat, I spoke about this, I always hear Tu Bishvat. Every single year, you look at the trees, you're dead. You're dead, you're celebrating Rosh Hashanah for trees. You're dead, celebrate it in the spring. You know, Happy New Year, guys. You got flowers, you got fruit, you got leaves. Happy New Year to these things. In New York, Happy New Year, Tu Bishvat. There's snow and ice on them. They're dead. You're dead. Why are you celebrating when you're dead? Because you're not dead. Because the Beishama, Beishilah, the Maslaikis is, the sap is going into the Esrik tree. One says Rishchaydish, one says Tubishvah. It's not dead. The branches look dead. But the roots, the roots are never dead. 
And therefore, we as Jews, we celebrate potential. Once the flowers and fruits are out there, no celebration. We make a bracha on the blo- a blossom because the blossom is the potential that there's going to be a fruit from the tree. Again, we don't make a bracha on the apple or the orange or the peach. We make a bracha in Nisan on the flower because the flower is the potential of the fruit. We don't make a bracha on the, on the gold. That's very pre-age. But the bracha that we make is on the potential. Potential of a person you don't always see. So I had so many girls that were tamidot and tamidim. They look like dead trees. They look like the kids that weren't going to make it. And they're the gedolim today. And the kids that I thought would make it, they had little teeny roots. Everybody in this room has roots. And even if you feel that the tree is, feels dead, there's no leaves, there's no flowers, I'm not doing good in Gemara, I'm not the best guy in Yeshiva, I'm not such a Tamachacham, who cares? There's, there's roots, there's sap, there's life. You have to be focused on your goal. Don't let him sell you garbage. And if you have those roads that you've closed that you don't want to ever go back to, Create something, a new superhighway. Whether it's learning or it's chesed or it's kirov, whatever it is, it's so big in your life that when you're in trauma and in trouble and you turn around in your brain and you want to go back to something because I'm in pain, that's the place you end up. You never end up on that road that you close. But there's such a big highway in the middle. Maybe all these guys have that next, next yard side of my father. We'll see in Bechayim, Bechias and Mason, Mashiach, and Herbie Emanuel. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.